recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 3rd, 2015. Here we are going to present part seven of our series, The Protocols of Satan. Today, as a digression, today I ordered a copy of an evidently out-of-print book called The Invention of Sacred Tradition, which claims that it examines the phenomenon of invented traditions in religions ranging in time from Zoroastrianism to Scientology. Now, we would agree that many so-called religions are merely invented traditions. Judaism should be at the top of the list. However, this particular book has a deeper motive and a darker motive. It contains a chapter entitled Anti-Semitism, Conspiracy Culture, Christianity and Islam, The History and Contemporary Religious Significance of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. I almost wanted to read the entire chapter and offer my own criticisms of it for tonight's program, but I could not get the entire chapter online, so I will wait for a hard copy of the book to arrive. I thought the Kindle price of the book was ridiculous, and the publisher, Cambridge University Press, is asking almost as much for that as for the hard copy. This book interested me because it attempts to critically analyze the use of the protocols in Christian fundamentalism and even within Christian identity circles. They um, haven't got a load of us yet. The analysis includes discussions of the various Christian interpretations of biblical eschatology, some of which fit our point of view, while of course I do not agree with all of the conclusions concerning the Revelation and the Prophets reached by many fundamentalists and even by many other identity Christians. But it is amusing to see Satan attempt a scholarly analysis of his Christian adversaries. And that is how I quantify this book. Christians may merely believe that the Bible is the word of God, but the devils will pick apart and criticize those Christian beliefs on his own terms and offer his criticisms to the world as scholarship. Then, the devils will lump those Christian beliefs together with all of the other deceptions which they themselves have created. Or if they have not created them, they have nevertheless assisted in their propagation. Jewish merchants and publishers were more than happy to sell millions of copies of the Scientology books back in the 70s and 80s. And then the Jews endeavored to discredit them all. And... Christianity along with them. In the end, the only thing the devils seem to find credible is Jewry itself. This is evident in passages from the book where the authors do not understand how some Bible-believing Christians could even make the claim that Jesus Christ was not a Jew. And then they mention showing their obvious bias, rather odd statements such as the apparent distinction between God's chosen people 
and the Jews. So these Cambridge University scholars, their, scholar, their scholarship betrays their own prejudices and their own invented traditions. Because if we take the Old Testament histories and the prophetic books, the New Testament statements of Christ and Paul of Tarsus, and the histories of Flavius Josephus as our sources, without a doubt we can prove that such a distinction exists. But Satan has all the money in the world. They print it. And with it, they keep alive their deception, trying to put themselves above the fray while perpetuating all of their lives. The Jews and their allies in modern academia have the appearance of scholarly authority, but they certainly do not possess the substance of such authority. So in the weeks to come, we will hope to present something of a criticism of that chapter in that particular book. Our purpose here this evening is to discuss a federal lawsuit against Henry Ford, which was filed by a Jewish lawyer named Aaron Sapiro. It's not spelled Shapiro, as it usually is. This Jew dropped the H. In 1925, he filed this lawsuit, and it dragged on until it was settled in 1927. While the lawsuit and its outcome have no bearing on the legitimacy of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. It was nevertheless taken advantage of in a ploy by prominent Jews to discredit the protocols for which they use it to this very day. And, as we shall see, that ploy of the Jews was used in turn by Henry Ford to get out of the lawsuit. Because of the popularity of Ford's publication of the international Jew among those who realize the veracity of the material in the protocols, and because of the way in which Jews have mischaracterized the Sapiro lawsuit as another proof against the protocols, we feel that no discussion of the protocols would be complete without a discussion of this lawsuit and what really happened when Henry Ford allegedly apologized for his articles in the Dearborn Independent, which were later compiled in the volumes titled The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. Firstly, one major misconception must be clarified. The Sapiro lawsuit against Ford, really had nothing to do with the international Jew. It had nothing to do with the Protocols of Zion or with most of the material which was ever published in the Dearborn Independent. The lawsuit only involved what certain articles in the Dearborn Independent had said of the particular Jewish lawyer, Aaron Sapiro, who was engaged in organizing farm crops. I'm sorry, farm co-ops. Ford smelled a rad and believed that through agents such as Sapiro, Jews were trying to corner the agricultural industry. 
According to a paper, which they actually did, but they had to wait until the 1930s in Franklin Roosevelt. According to a paper found at Harvard University called Sapiro versus Ford, the mastermind of the Marshall Maneuver. In reference to what Ford's newspaper said about Sapiro, the New York Times summarized the accusations. Mr. Sapiro was accused in the articles of being a cheat, a faker, and a fraud. Now, we would agree. Even if we would not publish such accusations without some evidence, although we do not perceive that Sapiro himself was an agent for Jews in general, that he was indeed acting out of greed and the desire for control of the production of others is a characteristic inherent among the typical members of his race. But what the Sapiro lawsuit does reflect is this, the problems with an egalitarian society. You can't defend one another from wolves when wolves have an equal vote with sheep. For thousands of years, Christians have known that the Jews are devils. The Christian Messiah has fully informed us that the Jews are devils, and his apostles warned us consistently not to have anything to do with them. Great Christian men such as Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther have warned us of the treachery of the Jews. In medieval England, Jews were consistently portrayed as devils, even with the characteristic tails, pitchforks, and horns of comic book devils. In the Middle Ages, Jews were run out of the various principalities of Europe on hundreds of occasions. Yet, in an egalitarian society such as ours, no matter how certain you are that the devil is up to no good, you cannot print it unless you can at least offer some proof in order to substantiate your claims. The Dearborn Independent accused the Jew Sapiro based on what he might do with the farm co-ops that he was forming. And therefore, Sapiro, under our all devils are equal legal system, had grounds for a lawsuit regardless of what his future intentions may have been. Devils, in modern legal terms, are not really devils until they are caught red-handed. Here we shall read a synopsis of the lawsuit from the Benson Ford Research Center in Dearborn, Michigan. And it says, Aaron Sapiro, a labor and agriculture cooperative activist, I got to choke on that one, spent many years organizing farming cooperatives in an attempt to protect farmers through internal price controls, that's called price fixing, and collective advertising. That's called monopoly. I'm sorry. I'm offering too much content. In 1920, too much comment. In 1924, Sapiro initiated a libel lawsuit against Henry Ford for anti-Semitic articles 
that appeared in the Dearborn Independent newspaper. Now, that's not true. Sapiro filed a lawsuit only because he himself was being libeled. Many other articles were mentioned, as we are about to see. Many other Jews were mentioned in the articles, but they didn't file lawsuits along with Sapiro. If all the Jews that felt offended could have filed, could have filed suit against Henry Ford, the lawsuit would have been granted class action status today. The articles, appearing over Henry Ford's signature, accused Sapiro of using the cooperative movement to seize control of American farmers for Jewish bankers and financiers. Sapiro named Henry Ford in a lawsuit as opposed to the Dearborn Independent, claiming that as the owner of the paper, Ford had final editorial approval over the content of the paper. Ford's defense, however, centered around William Cameron and Ernest Liebold, who claimed editorial control of the newspaper over Henry Ford, hoping to avert additional negative publicity and avoid taking the standing court. Ford agreed to an out-of-court settlement with Sapiro involving a cash payment and a written apology in the Dearborn Independent. Now, there is more to Ford's agreement than that. However, and there was much drama caused by both sides in the beginnings of the trial, which had resulted in a mistrial, along with the promise of a new trial. During the first trial, the strategy of Ford's lawyer backfired, which was to claim that Cameron and Liebold had all of the editorial control. And it backfired where a writer for the paper offered testimony which conflicted with the assertions of Cameron and Liebold. Then, Ford's car was run off a road, and he suffered injuries, which necessitated a short hospitalization. It was at that point that Ford sought an agreement to settle the case. We're going to read a review from Legal Affairs magazine of a book titled Suing Henry Ford by Victoria Sacker Woster and Susan Radomsky, two women who are evidently both Jews. But while the article is rather candid concerning the actual circumstances of the case of the Henry Ford lawsuit and the apology, its conclusion concerning the apology, which had supposedly been extracted from Ford, an apology that Ford never saw beforehand, has one obvious discrepancy with a crucial first-hand account, and we will, of course, elucidate that. Otherwise, the article also contains several obvious political biases. Those biases are made even more evident when, where the author, Wosta, has written other articles connected to this book. For instance, an article written for the American Bar Association is entitled, Suing Henry Ford, America's First Hate Speech Case. But that characterization of the case is an obvious lie. The Jews are beginning to revise the facts around the Ford case so that they could promote the idea that there's such a thing as hate speech that can be 
persecuted or prosecuted in America. That's bullshit. That's a lie. Henry Ford's, the lawsuit against Henry Ford was not a hate speech case. Rather, it was a simple case of libel. And it would probably have worked out better for Sapiro if he was not a Jew. The book is also misleadingly subtitled, The Trial That Forced the Automaker to Apologize for His Anti-Semitism. And that, that's entirely a lie, as we shall see. There was an apology, but it wasn't made by Henry Ford. The Harvard Sapiro versus Ford paper calls Wosta the most prominent scholar on the case. We would call her the biggest liar. But in reality, Henry Ford himself never apologized. Ford had only allowed an apology to be issued in his name, an apology which he never saw beforehand. But he allowed this to get out of the pains of another trial in a million-dollar libel case, which he was very likely to lose. He was very likely to lose the case because the defense contention was that Ford's editors had editorial control of the paper, but there, were, there was indeed a writer of articles that got on a stand and testified, a writer of articles for the Dearborn Independent, who got on the stand and testified that he himself had spoken to Henry Ford about several articles which were about to be published that he had written, and it made it clear that Henry Ford did indeed have editorial control of the paper. Based on that alone, Henry Ford was going to lose this lawsuit if the first suit did not result in a mistrial, which the Ford side did a lot more to cause than the plaintiff side. That's just the way it is. Here we shall read, read the review of Wost's book from Legal Affairs magazine. Employees, suppliers, and enthusiasts of Ford Motor Company were invited to spend five days in June celebrating the company's 100th birthday at the Henry Ford II World Center in Dearborn, Michigan. Among the big event's biggest draws was its headlining history concert, staged to pay tribute to a legendary company and its legendary founder, Henry Ford. Promotional materials touted Ford's innovative use of the assembly line and his personal relationship with fellow inventors, like Thomas Edison and, now they have to throw a nigger in there to make everybody happy, and George Washington Carver. But, as if there could be a nigger inventor. But though Ford's contribution to industry is worthy of praise, a fuller portrait of his character should also take into account his dealings with a little-known lawyer named Aaron Sapiro. Henry Ford's antipathy towards Jews, bear in mind that this author is a Jew, of course, has occupied many biographers, it first surfaced publicly during World War I, 
which he blamed on Jewish financiers and industrialists. Unable to peddle his views through the mainstream press, Ford bought his own weekly newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, in 1918. Between 1920 and 1922, Ford's paper ran 91 articles based on excerpts from the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, a book describing a Jewish conspiracy to achieve world domination, even after the Protocols was exposed by the Times of London as a forgery, and we have already discredited that exposure. It was concocted by the Russian secret police to shore up support for the Tsar's government, and of course we have already discredited that. Ford stubbornly defended his decision to publish them. The only statement I care to make about the protocols is that they fit in with what is going on, he said. Ford continued to sell series to sell articles adapted from the protocols in a separate pamphlet titled The International Jew, eventually distributing over 500,000 copies. And of course, the entire collection fills four good-sized volumes. But by 1927, Ford's public stance on Jews had changed. Now, this simply is not true at all. He released a statement offering his friendship and goodwill to the Jewish people and promised to halt the publication of the International Jew. Strangely, the series of events that led Ford to make this promise began with a fight over the future of American agriculture. On one side was Ford the founder of the nation's largest automaker and its wealthiest man, who believed in the tradition of small, independent farms. His opponent was Aaron Sapiro, a leading proponent of farming collectives at the time who is now mostly forgotten, and deservedly so. The post-World War I period was a time of recession in the United States, and farmers were hit particularly hard. Congress tried to help the farm sector by exempting it from federal antitrust law. Sapiro, a Chicago lawyer who was formerly legal counsel for a California state regulatory agency that oversaw private markets, used the new exemption to set up roughly 60 farming cooperatives that used their collective strength to keep prices up. A leading agricultural economist of the day credited Sapiro with changing the whole direction of the cooperative movement, not necessarily for the better. Ford opposed Sapiro's work, believing that the future of agriculture depended upon small farms that remained independent. For Ford, the solution to the farm problem lay in finding new technology to help small farmers operate more efficiently. It was a vision at least partially inspired by Ford's own experience growing up on a small farm outside of Detroit. And most small farmers embraced the automaker as one of their own. In contrast, Sapiro's claims to rural leadership rested on professional expertise in law and markets. He was a city-bred Jewish lawyer, someone easily labeled an outsider, 
1924, Ford's newspaper did just that, attacking Shapiro as an exemplar of the nefarious influence of the international Jew in American life. And not for nothing, but the Byrne lawsuit was also about politicians who were using the protocols to demonstrate Jewish treachery to farmers. They started out with farmers. The party that those politicians belonged to was basically a rural farming party, as we explained when we discussed that trial in the first two segments of these presentations. In its 1924 attack, back to Victoria Wolsta, if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, in its 1924 attack, the Independent offered Sapiro's work in cooperative marketing as proof that the conspiracy theory of the protocols was sound. Jewish exploitation of farmers' organizations screamed one headline. According to the paper, Sapiro was manipulating his clients to put American agriculture under the thumb of Jewish speculators. The paper accused Sapiro of spreading the vicious doctrines of communism and imposing Soviet-style controls on American agriculture. Sapiro was not the independence only target. Its pages also assailed other prominent Jews, including the constitutional lawyer Louis Marshall, War Industries board chairman Bernard Baruch, and Paul Warburg, a creator of the Federal Reserve Bank. These men, members of the East Coast establishment, chose to ignore the attacks like many prominent Jews of the time, they thought that calling attention to ugly rhetoric was out of keeping with the genteel image of successful assimilation that they wanted to maintain. Sapiro saw no reason for restraint. In 1925, he sued Ford for libel in federal district court in Detroit where he could look forward to cross-examining his adversary. At a time when President Calvin Coolidge earned $75,000 a year, Sapiro got the public's attention by asking for damages of $1 million. He hired William Henry Gallagher, a flamboyant Irish Catholic trial lawyer in Detroit. Ford's attacks mean but one thing, Sapiro said, that Ford and his hirelings are bent upon eliminating the Jew from agriculture. And we all understand that Yahweh God eliminated the Jew from agriculture back in Genesis chapter 4. Ford retained Senator James A. Reed so the Jew hasn't been able to grow a damn thing and fails every time he tries. Ford retained Senator James A. Reed 
a Democrat from Missouri with his eye on the presidency to serve as his lead counsel. Reed was paid $100,000 to preside over a stable of in-house lawyers and investigators. His objective as he wrote in his notes, was to use Ford's considerable resources to harass and impoverish the plaintiff. Reed dispatched investigators and lawyers to search for proof of the independent allegations. They visited nearly every state to take depositions, generating over 40,000 pages of documents in sessions that Gallagher attended at Sapiro's expense. These tactics delayed the trial for 15 months until the presiding district judge, Arthur Tuttle, told Ford that he would have to start paying Sapiro's expenses if he wanted another continuance. Reed responded with an affidavit from his client that stated Tuttle was prejudiced against Ford because of his wealth. Under existing law, such an allegation required the judge to recuse himself. Disgusted, Tuttle complied. The trial finally got underway before a new judge in March 1927. In his opening statement, Reed argued that the case was not about anti-Semitism, only the paper's decision to report on Sapiro's scheme of controlling the farmers throughout the United States for the purpose of enriching himself. Gallagher countered that the anti-Semitic content of the articles and their many factual errors demonstrated malice, a necessary component of a libel case. In his opening statement, he pointed out that the paper's use of incendiary phrases, such as the Jewish submarine in America and the Jewish grip, underscored its bias. First to take the stand was the Independence editor, William J. Cameron, who testified that he alone was responsible for the newspaper's content. But the next witness, a former independent writer named James Martin Miller, told the jury that Ford had instructed him to write an article that would expose Sapiro. Let's print something that will upset the apple card, Miller remembered Ford saying. Reed cross-examined Sapiro for three weeks, hoping to showcase his abilities as an orator for his presidential run, and that's just conjecture. But Sapiro held up under the attack. The Detroit Jewish Chronicle reported that Sapiro answered Reed's questions with such swiftness that frequently he had completed his reply before Senator Reed had terminated the question. In the end, it was Reed who folded, taking to his hotel bed in exhaustion in mid-April. Gallagher followed this spectacle by announcing that he intended to call Ford as his next witness. It had taken 16 months to serve Ford with a witness subpoena, and courthouse observers greeted the news with excitement. But Ford had no intention of taking the stand. He'd been humiliated when he testified in a 1919 libel suit against the Chicago Tribune, revealing his limited education and provincial ideas. And he actually, um, he actually won that suit, but was only awarded a token amount. 
He named 1812 as the date of the American Revolution, identified Benedict Arnold as a writer, and declared his opposition to military preparedness. And none of that really matters in Henry Ford's life. And none of it was really relevant to the case in 1919. Reed promised Judge Tuttle's replacement, Judge Fred M. Raymond, that he would produce his client at the appropriate time. But soon afterwards, the senator announced that Ford had recently been injured in a car accident, of all things. Hardly anyone in the press believed it, and Gallagher prepared a motion to have his own doctors verify the injury. And it's documented that Ford's car was indeed run off the road. Before that could happen, Ford's team moved to end the proceedings. Harry Bennett, Ford's top bodyguard, obtained 14 affidavits from jurors and others in the courthouse making the bizarre allegation that Sapiro had tried to bribe one of the jurors in a libel case with a box of candy. We will talk much more about Mr. Bennett later this evening. When Raymond refused to grant a mistrial, Bennett arranged to have a local reporter interview the juror in question, a Detroit housewife named Cora Hoffman. Hoffman angrily denied that anyone had bribed her, but she pointed to the affidavits as evidence that the defense was desperate to have the case thrown out of court. Gallagher told reporters that the development carried the mark of a perfect frame-up, but because Hoffman's statement showed her to have a predisposition against Ford, Judge Raymond was forced to grant the defense a mistrial. He promised Sapiro that he would convene a new trial shortly. At this point, Ford sought a way out. The case had become personally embarrassing and a public relations nightmare, with his auto company's new Model A scheduled to debut in December, Ford had reason to get the trial behind him. He dispatched his friend, Earl Davis, a former assistant U.S. attorney then in private practice in Detroit, to New York to negotiate an end to the case with Jewish leaders, according to... Other accounts, which we shall present here, he dispatched Harry Bennett to New York to negotiate the case. Now, it's possible that Harry Bennett didn't go alone, but it's odd that Harry Bennett is not mentioned here in, in this context. Once in New York, Davis made his way to Louis Marshall, the president of the American Jewish Committee, and a leading civil rights lawyer. Marshall wasn't interested in helping Sapiro, whose lawsuit he'd opposed from the beginning, though he had built a career crusading for civil rights. Marshall stayed away from cases about anti-Semitism. Approached by Davis, Marshall saw the negotiations as a chance to broker a resolution that served the wider interests of the Jewish community. He told Ford that to make good, he needed to repudiate the international Jew. And he handed Bennett, so here Bennett is named, but he should have been named sooner, and he handed Bennett a sample apology script to read to Ford over the telephone. And she quotes the script in part. To my great regret, I have learned that 
Jews generally, and particularly those of this country, not only resent these publications as promoting anti-Semitism, but regard me as their enemy. The draft read, the draft created by Lewis Marshall, who's drafting an apology for Henry Ford. And it goes on to say, had I appreciated even the general nature to say nothing of the details of these utterances, I would have forbidden their circulation without a moment's hesitation, accepting every word, and that's simply a lie. Ford authorized Bennett to sign his name to the statement. It hit the newspapers on July 8, 1927. The apology, which Marshall never thought would be accepted verbatim, was a masterpiece of evasion. It didn't mention Sapiro's name, and it let Ford maintain his posture at trial, that he was unaware of the Independent's anti-Semitic content. For Marshall, these concessions were easily worth Ford's promise to halt publication of the international Jew. He assumed Ford's newfound contrition would allow Sapiro to settle his case easily. The apology drew mixed reactions from the press. Though satirical parodies of the statement appeared in several newspapers and magazines, most influential newspapers accepted Ford's statement. It was never Ford's statement. That's another lie. At face value. David Moses' son, the editor of the Jewish Tribune, wrote, it was with a feeling of profound satisfaction that I read of Mr. Ford's apology. The Pittsburgh Sun editorialized, let the ugly chapter now be closed. Mr. Ford's retraction is, com retraction is complete and earnestly sincere on its face. With the majority of the Jewish press lauding the apology and Marshall's role in it, well, Marshall wrote it, it was his apology, Sapiro felt obliged to accept a resolution he privately regarded as hollow and stolen. I got everything I was fighting for, Sapiro told the press. I am glad that I have helped a great big man, Ford, get right. He settled with Ford in exchange for a full retraction and a payment of about $140,000 towards his expenses. Afraid of looking like an opportunist, Sapiro accepted a sum far less than his actual costs, which included a significant outlay for private investigators whose work he had kept secret. The libel case nearly bankrupted him. After the settlement, Sapiro moved from Chicago to New York, where the Jewish community treated him like a hero. But in the years that followed, his career went into freefall. When he worked with Chicago businesses to raise their prices through trade associations, he was indicted, along with 23 others, on charges of conspiring to restrain trade, which shows that Henry Ford was right in the first place. Touted by prosecutors as a blow against corruption, the Chicago racket trial, as it was called, linked Sapiro and other prominent professionals, including a University of Chicago economist and a local alderman, with gangsters like Al Capone. It was the longest running 
criminal proceeding in Cook County history, all of the defendants were acquitted. Imagine that. But for Sapiro, it would be the beginning of a series of professional setbacks. In 1934, a former client accused Sapiro's firm of investigating the jurors in one of his cases and not reporting the incident to the court. Sapiro was again cleared of criminal wrongdoing, but his reputation suffered. Already on the FBI watch list because of his Chicago indictment, he was disbarred by the state and federal courts in New York, broke and discredited. Sapiro moved back to California in 1937 and retreated from public view. He was still a member of the state bar there and practiced law quietly in Los Angeles, providing legal services to friends, including the actor John Barrymore and the con composer Igor Stravinsky. Though Sapiro Sapiro ended his career in obscurity. He never expressed regret for his fight against Ford. He died in 1959 at the age of 75. As for Ford, his apology to the Jews cost him little. He never apologized, so it cost him even less. After Marshall died in 1929, no one stepped forward to hold the automaker to his promise of withdrawing the international Jew from circulation. And the pamphlet became hugely popular in Nazi Germany. Ford remained devoted to his cars and his prejudices. On his 75th birthday in 1938, he accepted the Grand Service Cross of the Supreme Order of the German Eagle from Hitler's Third Reich. The award recognized his achievements as a manufacturer and an industrialist. Few contemporary observers missed the symbolism. In his heart and mind, Ford wasn't sorry at all. He wasn't sorry with his pen either. Now we are going to present a different side of this story from a rather despised individual and longtime Ford employee named Harry Bennett. Bennett was fired by Ford's grandson, Henry II, in 1945, two years before the death of Henry Ford in '47. The following is from a book first published in 1951, but which is now available in reprints titled, We Never Called Him Henry, as Harry Bennett, by Harry Bennett, as told to Paul Marcus, who, rather ironically, was also a Jew. We are going to include enough of this story so that some of Harry Bennett's own biases are also illustrated, but the important part is Harry Bennett's testimony about the apology. There were times when Mr. Ford tried to convert me to prejudice, but I'd never had any feeling of that kind, and the training I had got from my mother, who was a fine principled woman, saved me from being susceptible. That's too bad. And now I want to talk about two men, and here he does show prejudice, Ernest Liebold and Bill Cameron. This is a good place to do it, since Cameron had become editor of the Dearborn Independent, 
and Liebel, Mr. Ford's business secretary, was, among his other duties, general manager of the parent company, the Dearborn Publishing Company. Both of them, but particularly Cameron, were constantly stirring up Mr. Ford. During all the time I was with Mr. Ford, I was completely antagonistic to both Cameron and Liebold. I made endless attempts to fire them. It is hard for me to say which one I disliked most, but I guess honors would go to Liebold. Liebold was squat, heavy set, had a short bull neck and close cropped hair. He looked like a typical Prussian and often acted like one. He had a Gestapo of his own within the Ford Motor Company. He kept elaborate files and had something there about everyone. Bill Cameron was a short, stout, round-faced man. He looked and talked a lot like W.C. Fields, with the difference that Fields was funny. I have heard that he was once a preacher in Brooklyn, Michigan. He came to the Ford Motor Company from the Detroit Daily News. Cameron and I were enemies almost from the beginning. Back in the early days, when Cameron was very close to Mr. Ford, and I had but little standing in the company, I slapped Cameron's face in my office for using profanity before a young woman. He took it, too, backing out of the room. He said, by God, I didn't think you had the nerve. After a while, our mutual hostility grew so that Cameron refused to talk to me in person, and if I called him on the phone, he just hung up. For the 30 years that I knew him, Bill Cameron was quite a drinker. He, when he became the commentator on the Ford Sunday evening radio hour in 1934, two men were assigned to the job of getting him to the studio. Mr. Ford, inconsistent in so many things, was also inconsistent in his hatred of drinking. He might fire a workman caught in a plant with liquor on his breath, but when it came to someone like Cameron, his attitude was different. Well, to get back to the Sapiro trial, it began on March 15th in Detroit's post office building in the federal court of Judge Fred M. Raymond. Mr. Ford was represented by a legal staff of seven attorneys headed by Senator James M. Reed of Missouri. Sapiro was represented by William Henry Gallagher, a Detroit attorney who was an Irish Catholic. Mr. Ford considered Gallagher a Christian front for Sapiro, and after that, always spoke of the Catholics as tools of the Jews. A jury of six men and six women was selected that first day. The trial began with Cameron as the first witness. He testified that Mr. Ford had no knowledge of the Sapiro articles at the time they were published. Over a period of about five days on the witness stand, Cameron took all responsibility for everything that had ever appeared in the Dearborn Independent and said, in effect, that Mr. Ford had no connection whatsoever with the editorial policy of the paper. He testified, I run the paper and use my own judgment. I don't know about that. During the time Cameron was speaking of, Mr. Ford dropped into Cameron's office just about every day of the week. When Cameron's testimony was finished, he disappeared somewhere in Canada. It took us days to find him.
Sapiro took the stand as the next witness. Meanwhile, Mr. Ford, who had been subpoenaed by Sapiro to appear as a witness and had expected to testify at the opening of the trial, began to lose his nerve. On the day when Sapiro went on the stand, I had taken Mr. Ford down to the post office building to see if they were ready for him. Well, Harry, Mr. Ford said, when I came back to where I had left him sitting in the car, I want to stop this. I'm not coming down here again. Two days later, the newspapers called me at my home. They said, Mr. Ford had been in an automobile accident, and what did I know about it? The story, embodied in a formal statement issued by Cameron, was then on their presses. It said that Mr. Ford had been driving home alone in a Ford Coupe from the Dearborn Laboratories to his residence, that a big touring car driven by two men had knocked Mr. Ford's car off a bridge crossing the Rouge River. It was stated further that after a period of unconsciousness, Mr. Ford had walked to his gatehouse in great pain that the gatekeeper called Mrs. Ford, who took Mr. Ford to the residence and summoned Mr. Ford's physician. Mr. Ford's physician had stayed with Mr. Ford two days and then taken him by ambulance to the Henry Ford Hospital, where an operation had been performed. The story said the statement had been held up two days because of the unavoidable and unfounded inferences that may be drawn. Thus, neatly inferring that Sapiro and or his agents had attempted to kill Mr. Ford. Now, now with this story, there must have been many instances, many witnesses, and it must have been an easy story to prove, or the court could have clearly held Ford in contempt. And Victoria Wolsta is lying again, when she just dismisses this as a tale without even checking it out or telling us why. Harry Bennett continues, and he says, I went to the residence, and there saw Mr. Ford. He looked all right to me. I said, the papers said you had broken a rib. Did they, Mr. Ford said? Well, maybe I have. I said, I'm not going to find out who knocked you into the river, I'm sorry, I'm going to find out who knocked you into the river if it takes me the rest of my life. Now, Mr. Ford said, you just dropped this. Probably it was a bunch of kids. Bennett says, I kept at it. I was half indignant and half skeptical. On my way to the residence, I stopped at the scene of the accident and looked around, and there were things that seemed phony to me. I said, no, I'm not going to drop it. If someone has tried to kill you, I'm going to find out about it. I don't have to work for you to do that. I can do that on my own. Finally, he saw there was no way to put me off, and he said, well, Harry, I wasn't in that car when it went down into the river. I don't know how it got down there, but now we've got a good chance to settle this thing. We can say what we want we can say we want to settle it because my life is in danger. The case dragged on along for a few more weeks. Sapiro was kept on the stand by an exhausted cross-examination from Senator Reed. We had a large number of investigators checking the courtroom and following people around to see what we could get on someone, thinking we might settle the case that way, but without results. 
Finally, one day, when I was with Mr. Ford, he gave me some information that had been brought to him which purported to be an attempt at bribing a juror. I thought this evidence pretty slim, but I saw a chance to use it. From the very beginning of the trial, I had persistently followed everywhere I went by a man named Hutchinson. Hutchison, I'm sorry, a Hearst correspondent who had been covering the trial. It seemed that everywhere I went, he popped up. So I now said to Mr. Ford, do you want to settle this thing? If you do, I'll give your tip to this fellow Hutch. He'll print it, and the judge will toss the jury out. Then you can settle it. Mr. Ford told me to go ahead. I approached Hutch, Hutchison, and told him about Mr. Ford's information. Mind, I said, this isn't something I could prove. It's just something we've heard. Our lawyers then took Mr. Ford's allegations up with the judge. They gave him 14 affidavits alleging irregularities. The judge turned this information over to the FBI for investigation. Sapiro was not informed of this development. Judge Raymond called in all the newspaper men covering the case and warned them to print nothing about the matter. Hutch was conspicuous by his absence. Hutch wrote a story based on the affidavits that our attorneys had filed with the judge and turned it in to the Detroit Times. They printed the story in screaming headlines. When the Times appeared on the streets, Judge Raymond at once said that the story constituted contempt of court and that he would start proceedings against the paper. Mr. Ford's attorneys now filed an application for a mistrial. Judge Raymond granted a mistrial the next day, April 21st. He also completely exonerated Sapiro of any charges of jury tampering. A few months passed, and before the case could come up for retrial, Mr. Ford settled it out of court. Not much of that story is known. A man whose name has never been publicly mentioned in connection with the Aaron Sapiro case is Herman Bernstein. He had more to do with Mr. Ford's repudiation of anti-Semitism than anyone else. Bernstein, the editor of the Jewish Tribune, had gone to Europe in 1915 with Mr. Ford on the peace ship. He came to see Mr. Ford before the Sapiro trial began. They had a long and bitter discussion about Mr. Ford's bigotry, and Ford claimed that nothing he had ever caused to be printed had hurt anyone. Bernstein insisted it had stimulated real physical violence against Jews in Europe. If you can prove that, Mr. Ford said, I'll take back everything I ever said. Bernstein promptly departed for Europe. He made a five-month tour, returning to New York on June 9, 1927, after the mistrial had been granted. He brought to Mr. Ford documentary evidence that Mr. Ford's Dearborn Independent had indeed hurt a great many people. When he saw this evidence, Mr. Ford decided he was ready to quit publishing anti-Semitic material. Mr. Ford sent me to New York to settle the case. I got in touch with Arthur Brisbane, and through him learned that the American Jewish Committee could settle the matter. I entered into negotiations with Samuel Untermeyer and Louis Marshall of that organization and with Brisbane. They drew up the now famous apology, which was to be the basis for settlement.
In his formal statement, it was said that Mr. Ford would see to it that no more anti-Semitic material circulated in his name, and that he would call in all undistributed copies of the International Jew, which were booklet reprints of the Independence articles. For the rest, the apology that Mr. Ford had had no knowledge of what had been published in the Dearborn Independent and was shocked and mortified to learn about it. Arthur Brisbane brought this statement to me at 1710 Broadway. I, told, I phoned Mr. Ford. I told him an apology had been drawn up and added, It's pretty bad, Mr. Ford. I tried to read it to him over the phone, but he stopped me. I don't care how bad it is, Mr. Ford said. The worse they make it, the better. You sign it and settle the thing up. So I signed Mr. Ford's signature to the document. I had always been able to sign his name as realistically as he could himself. I sent the statement to Uttermeyer and Marshall. The signature was verified, and the case was closed. All this was done without Mr. Ford's taking anyone else into his confidence. Etzel knew nothing about it, and Cameron and Senator Reed heard about it by reading the papers. Cameron's reaction was quoted by the newspapers. It's all news to me, and I cannot believe it is true. Mr. Ford paid Aaron Sapiro's legal expenses, and he also paid Bernstein's expenses incurred on his trip. Neither man would take a cent over that. The apology was printed in the Dearborn Independent, and the paper ceased publication early in 1928. Now, there are some minor um, discrepancies between Harry Bennett and his testimony and Victoria Wost, or Wosta, and her findings, such as Sapiro's expenses and whether or not they were really covered and things like that. The Bernstein trip and Ford's decision to close the Dearborn Independence, if it was actually based on evidence which Bernstein produced, is wholly independent of anything to do with this trial and with Aaron Sapiro and even with Lewis Marshall. The last edition of the Dearborn Independent was December 31st, 1927. The Ford heirs hated Harry Bennett, and they hated this book. And when it was published, they allegedly sought to buy up all the copies in order to keep it from the public used copies of various 1951 publications, that's when the book was first published, and there seemed to have been at least two editions of the book in that year, are indeed available online. And for as little as $20, $22, I think. So I don't think that the book is as rare as the Ford's would allegedly have liked to have made it.
But in essence, the protocols, they're not a forgery. But the signature on Henry Ford's supposed apology for telling us about them, that is a forgery. Regardless of what we may think or learn of Harry Bennett, his testimony that Ford never saw nor heard the supposed apology, which he also never signed, conflicts with the story which we presented earlier from the book on the Ford lawsuit by the Jewish Victoria Wolsta, who admitted the same circumstances except to claim that Ford heard every word of the apology. The only testimony available from first-hand eyewitnesses is this testimony from Harry Bennett, the guy who was supposedly talking to Ford on the phone. So we see that Victoria Wolster has told another lie. Harry Bennett certainly had no reason to lie about this, to lie about any of it. He may have... Um, not believe Ford's account of the auto accident, but there certainly was, if a car ended up in a river, some type of accident. And it's possible that Ford was injured, but just didn't want Bennett to pursue it because it would only create further publicity. Ford wanted to get out of this case. He wanted to get out of this case without having to testify. He did not do well on a stand in a libel case that he initiated against the Chicago Tribune, and he won, although he was only rewarded six cents. There are people that are, that are very honest, but simply don't do well on the witness stand. When Harry Bennett wrote this book, he had no reason to lie because Ford had already been dead for four years when his book was first published, and Bennett himself had already been fired from Ford Motor Company for six years before this book was published. The Jewish writer... Bennett got to do the book with him, had even less reason to lie. So we must accept Bennett's testimony to be credible, and it unplugs both Lewis Marshall and Victoria Wolster, as well as so many other analysts of the so-called Ford Apology. How can someone analyze words attributed to Ford if Ford never uttered those words. But not only that, never even saw or heard them, according to Harry Bennett, before they were published. How can you analyze an apology made by a man that the man had absolutely nothing to do with, didn't see it, didn't hear it, didn't sign it, and sure as hell didn't write it? That is a joke. And that is why we will not offer the apology itself here this evening. I won't have anything to do with the apology itself because not one bit of it came from Henry Ford. He never even signed it. That's the forgery. Even if he tells Harry Bennett to sign it. 
Even Jewish publications, such as the online newspaper Haaretz, freely admit that the Jew, Louis Marshall, had written the so-called Apology of Henry Ford. But they do not admit that Ford never saw it before it was published, and Ford never signed it himself. The ADL does make a partial admission in this regard in its own article entitled The Sapiro Trial and Ford's Apology, where it says, Though Ford apologized for the international Jews and closed the Dearborn Independent, he later accepted the Grand Cross of the German Eagle from Hitler's Nazi government in July 1938. Some remain skeptical of his apology, claiming that Ford himself neither wrote nor personally signed it. And we must note that we have not yet determined whether the closing of the Dearborn Independent was directly related or related at all to the settlement of the case, but it seems to be that it was certainly only related to the unrelated promise that Ford had made to Bernstein, as Bennett describes. Bernstein wasn't a plaintiff in the case. But when all things are considered, Aaron Sapiro, when we sit back and look at the big picture, Aaron Sapiro was thrown under the bus by his fellow Jews so that they could capitalize on his libel case and get a retraction from Ford for what they considered to be his greater crime of anti-Semitism. But Ford had nothing to do with the retraction, nothing to do with the ap apology. He never heard it, and he only wanted out of an embarrassing position if the second trial of the case were to commence. Ford was obviously in danger of losing the case because of the conflict between his own employees, the conflict in their testimony, which came out in the first case, and the opportunistic willingness of Lewis Marshall and Samuel Untermeyer gave Ford that way out with much less bad publicity and at a fraction of the cost that Ford would have incurred if the case had not been settled. If Ford lost the case and was held, he could have been held liable by the judge for up to a million dollars plus court costs. Ford had allowed somebody else to sign his apology, which he never even saw, never even read, and probably saved about $900,000 or a million dollars. Having already been run off the road, even if Jews were not responsible for that incident, Ford also may have believed that his life was endangered if the case continued. G.F. Green, the editor for the popular abridged version of the International Jew, the world's foremost problem, which is still available in print, but which is also now found on many websites, including the Saxon Messenger at Christagenia, said this in his own introduction to the book, 
which he wrote in 1948. In an interview published in the New York World, February 17, 1921, Mr. Henry Ford put the case for the Protocols of Zeon tersely and convincingly. He said, the only statement I care to make about the Protocols is that they fit in with what is going on. They are 16 years old, meaning from the time they were first published by Nihilus. They are 16 years old, and they have fitted the world situation up to this time. They fit it now. He made this statement when Jewish leaders and the Jewish press in America were fulminating against a series of articles printed in Ford's newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, during the years 1920 to 1922. After some years of pressure, such as only organized Jewry can conceive or inflict, Henry Ford was made to apologize to Jewry in a letter addressed to Louis Marshall, then leader of the American Jewish Committee, dated June 30, 1927. Ford's apology was abject, but neither then nor since did he ever deny the truth of the articles. Green evidently believed that Henry Ford apologized, but he probably could not have learned of the true circumstances of the so-called apology before the Harry Bennett book was published in 1951. So Green's assessment of the apology is basically void once the Harry Bennett book is published. And we learn that Ford never read, heard, nor signed the so-called apology before it was published. Another figure, Ford just wanted to get it over with and get out of the case and save himself a million dollars. He beat the Jews out of up to a million dollars by allowing this to happen. Another figure, one who probably had the opportunity to realize differently, was Elizabeth Dilling. She also seems to have taken it for granted that Ford actually apologized, at least as she expressed in her 1964 book, The Jewish Religion, Its Influence Today, in a portion of Chapter 12, which was subtitled, the Jews and the Communization of Russia, where she had written, Ford apologizes to Jewry. And she says, even one of the most wealthy and powerful men in the world was not immune to Jewish power and intimidation. The unqualified crawl, even the misstatement that he had been unaware of the contents of his Dearborn Independence appeared over Henry Ford's signature, January 30th, 1927, just about six and a half years after the above article appeared. The apology was addressed to Louis Marshall as head of the American Jewish Committee. The renowned theologian, Dr. James Gray, head of the Moody Bible Institute, wrote concerning this apology by Ford on in the Moody Monthly for September of 1927, this confession is, in our opinion, another link in the chain of prophecy. As we read it, we were impressed that the great millionaire went further than the circumstances of the case required him to do. To put it another way, 
We do not believe the editor of The Independent, Mr. Ford's paper, was either as foolish or as wicked as the confession of its proprietor would make him appear. We believe he had good grounds for publishing some of the things about the Jews which he did publish. Indeed, the pressure brought to bear upon Mr. Ford to make his confession was in itself such corroborative evidence. This pressure came from Jews all over the world, and in the face of it, Mr. Ford was panic-stricken. He is one of the richest men in the world, and of course conscious of the power that money brings with it, but he was made to feel the Jews had more money and hence more power than he, and that in such a cause their money and their power can be quickly mobilized against an opponent with crushing consequence. Dillon goes on to say, Dr. Gray knew what he was talking about, having been subjected to Jewish threats himself, but he refused to recant his assertions that the Protocols of Zion represent the program of Talmudic world Jewry. I knew Dr. Gray. Large numbers of my book, The Red Network, were sold in the Moody Bookstore. I spoke in the Moody Church and over the Moody Radio. Unfortunately, Dr. Gray's successor has quieted down many matters in favor of Jewry. The context of Elizabeth Dilling's statements here. were in a larger chapter characterizing the political and economic pressure which the Jews of the period had exerted among many notable men who stood in their way, including former U.S. President Howard Taft. However, she is quoting a source from 1927, which also took it for granted that Henry Ford had actually issued an apology, when in fact it is only true that an apology that Ford had never seen nor signed was issued by an employee in his name. Because the apology was never seen nor signed, by Ford himself, all attempts to analyze its contents are vain. The apology only reflects the wishes of the Jews and not the thoughts of Henry Ford. With this, we shall read a better summary of Ford's thoughts after the matter was over, as they were related by Gerald L.K. Smith much later. And this psalm, this is part of his own, or I should probably say of a later publication of the condensed version of the International Jew, which was published after 1948, and the original introduction by Green, G.F. Green. Now, Gerald L.K. Smith added his own introduction to the material, 
which is clearly marked as not being a part of the original work. And Gerald L.K. Smith says, at the apex of his business career, Henry Ford, the industrial genius, sensed that a terrific effort was being made to take his business from him and manipulate it into the hands of the money changers. Mr. Ford had the impression that these manipulators were being engineered by powerful Jewish financiers. He called to his office the most intelligent research men within his acquaintance. He commissioned them to make a thorough study of the international Jew and publish their findings in the Dearborn Independent, which at that time was the official organ of the Ford Motor Company. No expense was spared, and it is estimated that literally millions of dollars were spent by Mr. Ford on this project. The original articles carried first in the Dearborn Independent and then published in book form. I have in my possession every copy of the Dearborn Independent. This complete set is beautifully bound in Morocco leather and was given to me by an inner circle member of Mr. Ford's personal staff. When the report on the International Jew was originally published, it opened each chapter with a text taken from the protocols of the learned elders of Zion or from the published statements of world prominent Jews. The moment the manuscripts dealing with the Jewish problem reached the public, a terrific howl went up from official Jewry. If I were to summarize the campaign of reprisal and abuse which was carried on against Mr. Ford and his company, this summary alone would require a book. Every instrument of torture and abuse which could, which could be imagined was carried on against Mr. Ford. Smear, character assassination, ridicule, physical threat, boycott. The pressure was constant, consistent, and endless. The most powerful and enigmatic pressures imaginable were brought to bear on Mr. Ford to stop a publication of the International Jew. Finally, the order came through to cease publication and to destroy the copies which were available. Jews and others went into the bookstores and bought and destroyed all copies which could be found. Sneak thieves were commissioned to visit libraries and steal the report out of libraries. This made the book so rare and unfindable that it became a collector's item. The day finally came when the ambition of the Jews was fulfilled. Mr. Ford apologized for publishing the International Jew and blamed subordinates for the deed. In 1940, I interviewed Mr. Ford on numerous occasions. In fact, on the day before his first automobile was put under glass, he and Mrs. Ford invited Mrs. Smith and myself to be their guests at Dearborn. On this occasion, he told me the whole story of his first car and how he happened to make it. Among the precious souvenirs which have come to Mrs. Smith and myself is a New Testament autograph by Mr. Ford and handwritten letters from Mrs. Ford commenting favorably on some of my speeches and expressing in her own handwriting Mr. Ford's appreciation for my activities. It was on the 
occasion of one of these personal visits with Mr. Ford that he gave me a sensational and shocking report. He said, Mr. Smith, my apology for publishing The International Jew was given great publicity, but I did not sign that apology. It was signed by Harry Bennett. For the information of the reader, Harry Bennett was a very officious and aggressive employee of the Ford Motor Company. He presumed his way into the confidence of Mr. Ford and later became known as an enigmatic and obnoxious personality. Space will not permit a thorough discussion of the activities of Harry Bennett. Mr. Ford's personal secretary for 34 years, Mr. Ernest Liebold, told me that one of the worst things that ever happened to the Ford Motor Company was the employment of Harry Bennett. For a certain period of time, Bennett exerted virtually dictatorial control over the affairs of the company. His alleged deeds, if summarized, might make a rather scandalous book, and we have already read from Harry Bennett how badly Bennett had spoken of Ernest Liebold, as well as William Cameron, in his own book. Evidently, Gerald L.K. Smith, a Christian pastor and conservative activist throughout the war period, starting with Huey Long all the way through the 1950s, and maybe even beyond that, I don't really know when he died. Gerald L.K. Smith must evidently had gotten to know Mr. Ernest Liebold personally. Another personal note is on William Cameron. William Cameron had later written a moderately popular introductory Christian Christian identity book called The Covenant People, and that's still available, I believe from Kingdom Identity Ministries, but also from Destiny Publishers, if they are still in business, to continue with Gerald L.K. Smith. When Mr. Ford told me that he had not signed the apology, it seemed almost unbelievable. In fact, I could scarcely believe my own ears. Furthermore, on the occasion of this same visit, Mr. Ford said, Mr. Smith, I hope to republish the International Jew again sometime. He showed no signs of regret for having published it in the beginning. So we see that for once the ADL was right about something. Ford never had any regrets. His own feelings never reflected the feelings marked by the apology, which he didn't write, didn't sign, and never read until he read about it in the newspapers later on. I did not report this conversation even to my most faithful followers because the original apology had been so thoroughly publicized that I knew it would be difficult to make people believe what I heard from Mr. Ford's own lips. Well, Harry Bennett, Harry Bennett, as we will see, Gerald L.K. Smith explain, 
Harry Bennett corroborated those things after Ford died. And Smith says, after Mr. Ford died, the man Harry Bennett evidently was very much disillusioned and embittered by the fact that he did not share generously in the inheritance. He collaborated with a Jew by the name of Paul Marcus in the writing of a book entitled, We Never Called Him Henry. Here is Mr. Bennett's own story concerning the much-publicized apology Mr. Ford is supposed to have made for exposing the machinations of the international Jew. Here are Mr. Bennett's own words. Now, if this was really lengthy, I wouldn't read it because we've already read it, but we'll read it again because it's rather brief. I got in touch with Arthur Brisbane, and through him learned that the American Jewish Committee could settle the matter. I entered into negotiations with Samuel Untermeyer and Louis Marshall of that organization and with Brisbane. They drew up the now famous apology, which was to be the basis for a settlement. In this formal statement, it was said that Mr. Ford would see to it that no more anti-Semitic material circulated in his name and that he would call in all undistributed copies of the International Jew, which were booklet reprints of the Dearborn Independence articles. For the rest, the apology said that Mr. Ford had no knowledge of what had been published in the Dearborn Independent and was shocked and mortified to learn about it. Arthur Brisbane brought this statement to me at 1710 Broadway. I phoned Mr. Ford. I told him an apology had been drawn up and added, it's pretty bad, Mr. Ford. I tried to read it to him over the phone, but he stopped me. So I signed Mr. Ford's signature to the document. I had always been able to sign his name as realistically as he could himself. I sent the statement to Unermeyer and Marshall. The signature was verified and the case was closed. All this was done without Mr. Ford's taking anyone else into his confidence. Edsel knew nothing about it, and Cameron and Senator Reed heard about it by reading the papers. Cameron's reaction was quoted by the newspaper. It's all news to me, and I cannot believe it is true. Later, Mr. Bennett's story appeared in abbreviated form in True Magazine. The above quotation appeared on page 125 of that magazine for October 1951. So Gerald L.K. Smith isn't even quoting the book. He's quoting a condensed article created out of the text of the book. I give the reader this information in order that he may read what follows without the risk of any deception concerning the Ford apology. To summarize, one, the press quoted Mr. Ford as apologizing for the publication of the International Jew. Two, Mr. Ford told me in the presence of Mrs. Ford, Mrs. Smith, and Mr. Ernst Liebold, his secretary for 34 years, that he had hoped to republish it and that he did not sign the apology. Mr. Bennett, who at one time was one of the three most powerful individuals connected with the Ford Motor Company, admits that Mr. Ford did not sign the apology, but that he 
copied Mr. Ford's signature with accuracy, and that this signature is the only one which appeared on the formal apology. As far as I am concerned, I'm willing to base my conclusions relative to the report on meaning the international Jew, on the personal statement which Mr. Ford made to me. Whatever the case may be, the report in its original form, as well as the abridged edition herewith, meaning the edition of the international Jew which has been abridged and which Gerald L. K. Smith had republished, speaks for itself and is supported by the logic of its contents. Concerning the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, Mr. Ford said, on February 17, 1921, the only statement I care to make about the protocols is that they fit with what is going on. They have fitted the world situation up to this time. They fit it now. It must be observed that when Mr. Ford made this statement, concerning the protocols in relationship to his publication, The International Jew. This document, which is allegedly the secret minutes of the elders of Zion, was only 16 years old. The Jews had advertised to the world that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion were forgeries. Mr. Ford wasted no time arguing this question. He merely said to his friends, no matter what they are, they fit what is going on. And with this, we're done with Gerald L.K. Smith, and we conclude our presentation of the Ford Apology, which never happened, for a lawsuit that was never about the protocols of the learned elders of Zion or the international Jew in the first place. Only the Jews made it that way to procure an apology which never really came. Now today, they are trying to use this case as a case of hate speech so that they could show that hate speech somehow has legal precedent in our country and can be prosecuted, mark my words. Just as our Messiah and his apostles have warned us, when a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. This probably concludes our introductory materials to a planned presentation of the protocols themselves. I say probably because in my ongoing research, I never really know where I'm going to be led to next. I hope to commence with this project perhaps in early November, if Yahweh God is willing. We will be in central Louisiana and northwest Arkansas for much of mid-October and late October. If anyone who lives along the way would like to meet us, email info at Coincidentally, we shall be in Eureka Springs for as long as a week, in the same place where Gerald L.K. Smith had spent the closing years of his life and we hope to check out his monument, which he, which he was responsible for making or for getting made, called Christ in the Ozarks. It's an idol. It's an icon, but it might be fun. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. 
and good night.